is our final of three attempts to help each other be better teachers and lesson planners. So what I want to do tonight is, uh, first of all, commend you all for coming. And I hope that uh, the material we're covering will benefit you. As with anything, if you just taught it and you don't put it into practice soon, you won't remember any of it. So I would encourage you to start to put it into practice, start to try some of these principles and processes in, in your teaching ministry, and uh, you, will, uh, you will benefit from it. And before long, it'll, it'll sort of become just natural to you, I guess. That's the way I see it. So um, what I wanted to do so far or tonight is to look at what we've done so far and just, just a little bit of review. won't spend a lot of time on this, but just to kind of recap, we looked at the problems associated with poor teaching. So we had those different scenarios that you may have bumped into in your small groups or teaching classes. Um, talked about the goal of lesson planning, and that's one of the most important things we're going to talk about. So let's just all make sure we've nailed this one. What is the goal of lesson planning? Transform lives. It's not lesson planning. It's not teaching. It's not so that you can be a better teacher. The goal of lesson planning is selfless. It's for transformed lives. We talked about the uniqueness of Christian teaching, uh, the pluses and minuses of curriculum. We're not opposed to curriculum, but there's some minuses to it. A Wilkinson student-oriented goals, one of the most important of which is if the students haven't learned, it's the teacher's responsibility. Now, we, we obviously weigh that with the fact that you can be a great teacher and your students can be punks and just not be interested. But we don't think about that kind of thing so much. We take responsibility to help our students to learn. Personal transformation as a teacher, because we're teaching the Word of God, we want to make sure it's washed over us and cleansed us and informed us. General principles for teaching truth concepts, we got into those last week. Um, the R's, Larry Richards' levels of learning, from rote right through to, what was the final one? Response. And then we looked at the process leading up to teaching. So that was the, the rundown that I, I gave you, which is just this little visual. You study the Word of God. You organize your thoughts. You write your lesson and you teach. So right now, you can put a check mark beside the first two because we studied the Word of God together last week and we organized our thoughts using the lesson planning worksheet. You can use anything you want. A three three ring binder or whatnot, but I'm just suggesting that these are some categories, and you can add to these. This is just stuff I made up based upon my teaching ministry. So you can make your own up, but this is nothing. There's nothing sacrosanct about this. But this is just some things that I think through and, and put into practice. So you can do that as well. And then we're going to write a lesson plan tonight. And again, I just made it up. Because when you teach and you teach and you teach, you then go back and you sort of analyze how you do things and you adjust it. You don't have to find lesson plans online to create your own. And then you teach. So what we're going to do then is um, use a planning, we use the planning worksheet and today we're going to create a lesson plan. So I don't want to spend all night teaching you how to do the lesson plan because I want you to put it into practice. And I wrote all the names of the students down, but I think I, for some reason I missed a group. So the groups I have, I have Susie, Michelle, Joanne, Adriana, and Judy. They were working on a lesson plan for uh, elementary school students, correct? Okay, is your whole group here tonight? Okay. The next group was Jen, Allison, Cheryl, Rob, and Rebecca. I think there might be a few missing. <laughs> okay. Is there only two of you? Okay. So, And how many is in the other group? How many are here out of the other group? Susie, this Michelle, right? Okay. Joanne, Adriana, and Judy. Judy's here. Okay, so are four out of the five of you here? Okay, maybe we'll, we'll end up having three and three. We'll shuffle. Then there's a secondary group, which was Jack, Jeremy, Bruce, and Nancy. Is that correct? Yeah. 
Okay, and then there was two, uh, an adult lesson planning group, the Russells, the Clarks, the Adams. Okay, and then there was another adult group, Rich. Pardon me? Yeah, delinquent. <laughs> I'm surprised you'd say that when Marilyn's sitting beside you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then the other adult group was Rich, Michelle, uh, no, Reed, Heather, Glenn Granger, and Josh. Is most of that group here tonight? Maybe Josh is missing. Oh, you were secondary. So there was really one adult group then? Okay, so then the, the final adult group would have been Joe, you, because I didn't call your name. I didn't write the rest. Who? Oh, you. Okay, so yours is the group I didn't write down. So who's in your group that's here? Okay, so um, once you divide up into groups, we'll just shuffle some people around to make it work because you're, you're studying the same material. Yeah, okay. So um, we're going to go through a lesson plan, and because it's limited, we can't uh, approach every angle. You're, you're going to just have to use your own intuition and discernment to write it with your age group in mind. But the, the rest of it is going to be same for everybody. So here, here it goes. And this, this is based on the handout I gave you tonight. So do you all have that? It's called the Teachable Lesson Plan. Did you get one, Dave? Yeah. Okay. So... Um, what I'm suggesting at the top is that you you start off with some setup questions or just kind of fill in the blank. So you're going to write the title of your lesson down. Now, if a sermon's going to be advertised, you kind of got to come up with a cool title. But lessons don't have to have cool titles if your students aren't going to ask for them. The cool, your title could be you know a study of John three verse five, whatever. Okay, it doesn't ha unless for some reason you're going to market it, then you got to come up with a good title. But just give it a title and write down how much time you have allotted. So if you have, if it's a 20-minute lesson, write down 20 minutes. If it's an hour and a half lesson, write down an hour and a half. And, and then you're going to use that to weigh uh, out how much time you're going to spend on what, what I'm going to present as the five stages of a lesson plan. Scriptural passages that you're going to be touching on. Teaching goals for this lesson. Make sure they're age and uh, audience appropriate. Now, what are the teaching goals? Where are they going to come from? Okay, your worksheet, right? So if you go back to your worksheet, you have knowledge goals, attitudinal emotional goals, kinesthetic goals, doctrinal goals. You don't have to cover all four of those categories in one lesson. Nor, or, or if you are going to, you don't have to be equally weighted. You could have five knowledge goals and one kinesthetic goal. Let the text sort of tell you what kind of goals you're supposed to develop. If it's a text that's a lot about thinking, well, this, you should have some knowledge goals down. If it's a text that seems to address the attitude, then you're going to have some attitudinal goals and so forth, right? So let the text give rise to the kind of goals that you're going to set. But now you're going to extract them from your worksheet, and you can reword them here. Write down your teaching goals. These aren't things you're going to share with your students. They're just kind of get your head in the game. Then any materials or resources. So that's where you write in, oh, I've got to remember to bring some construction paper, my Bible, a video projector, uh, a box of crayons, whatever it is that you need to bring. Uh, you can just write down your resources or materials there. And again, age appropriate. You're not going to do construction cutouts with a you know, group of 25-year-old young adults. Okay, or you won't be teaching them very long. So, or what's that? <laughs> Depends on how, how much you want to get out of the teaching process or not. Okay, so now what we're going to do is I'm just going to introduce you to a five stages of teaching. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, these kind of flow more from the studies I've done in my philosophy of preaching. But I've, I've adapted them to teaching which I don't think is as different as sometimes people make it to be. It is different, but it's not as different as people sometimes make it out to be. But here's how, here's how I would uh, encourage you to set up a, a lesson plan. So first of all, you're going to have, we'll just call it the introduction. 
the, the introduction should not take up more than about 5 to 10% of your lesson time. So if you got like a 45-minute activity followed by a five-minute lesson, you're either scared to teach or you haven't studied the text, you don't know what to say, or you're filling time, or you're playing games with people. Because all the introduction, if it's and it can take many forms, we'll talk about that momentarily, is serves the purpose. Okay, so this this stage serves to get the students' attention and to orient them to the lesson. So let me let me share a couple of things uh, with you, just sort of to unpack this a little bit more. There's a spiritual component, a pedagogical component, a, like a teaching philosophy component to the introduction, and there's a really practical one. We'll start with the practical one, to get people listening to you, to orient people to your voice, to get them from stop looking around to actually paying attention. Very simple. So the introduction, whatever form it takes, basically, sometimes we call it the grabber. It grabs people's attention. It arrests people's attention. So you start with that. Normally, it's related to the lesson content. But the second reason is that it's going to serve as your springboard into your lesson content. So the way this might take shape is you create an activity, you tell a story, you engage in an exercise, individual, groups, pairs, whatever, show a video, play a song, sing a song, do some sort of a reading, ask a question, give a testimony, interview somebody, share a joke, a statistic, a new item, whatever it is that has some thematic tie-in to, tie to your say-it-in-a-sentence summary. Now, going back to the goals, what... How do you know what to pick for this? Well, you're going to help your, you want to, number one, help the students observe or think about the current world they are in, in order to prepare them to move into the biblical world. So we all come in sort of thinking about our week, thinking about our day, and we're not necessarily thinking about the scriptural text or the content of the scriptural text our teacher is going to take us to. So the introduction serves to get us thinking about our current world so that we can be prepared to move into the biblical world, find out what the biblical world has to say so that we can be catapulted back out at the end of the lesson into the current world. And to orient the students to the lesson slash to you. You are the teacher. So I know it sounds selfish, hey, I want your attention, but yes, I do. It's necessary if you're going to be a teacher to get the students' attention, to get them focused on you and the lesson at one and the same time. Now, there's, I, could, I could talk about this for hours because I've thought about it a lot in relationship to preaching, but you, and it becomes more natural over time. But the point is, th there's trouble in this world. Okay, this is a simple way of putting it. It's, it's called the grace-trouble construct. There's trouble in our world. So you're not getting along with your friends or you have a bad attitude or you don't know God or... You have trouble reading your Bible, or you're, you know, you're not getting along with your teacher, or whatever it is. There's trouble in our world, and essentially, what our teaching ministry boils down to is helping disoriented people find reorientation in Christ. Right? Essentially, that's what it's all about. So they're disoriented. They're struggling with all these troubles in the world. And we want to reorient them in Christ. So we take the people from their troubled world and we introduce them to trouble in the text or grace in the text, if it's trouble in the text, grace is going to be taught out of that. And then once they've encountered the solutions to their troubles and the grace of God that will enable them to overcome, they're released by you as the teacher back out into the world to live life. But what you sort of have to do is you've got to awaken the students who are maybe dragging their knuckles in at 9 o'clock in the morning, they've been up for 35 minutes, you got to get them thinking about the trouble in their world. They may not be thinking about it at that point. When I say trouble, I'm not necessarily talking that they've gotten trouble, but I'm just using that as a generic catch-all term to refer to the difficulties of life, the challenges of life in a broken world. So whatever you come up with, 
it's not just shooting the breeze. How was your week, Bobby? How was your week, Sally? Okay, let's go to Genesis 3, and we're going to study it. Everybody open your Bible and read it. That's El Boersville. Especially the younger the crowd, that's pretty boring. So you've got to create something to wake them up, arrest their attention, and get them, get them attentive and focused on you. Now, you don't just then go from that immediately into your lesson content. I'm going to suggest there needs to be a bridge. Okay, so just to be clear, I'm not talking about time. I'm talking about percentages. Because your whole lesson might be 15 minutes, or your whole lesson might be two hours. I'm just talking about percentage, about 5 to 10% of the time you have. So if you're doing a 45-minute lesson, I would recommend that you not give, what would that be, more than uh, four and a half minutes to the introductory material, and maybe less. An introduction, if it's depending on the topic, could be accomplished in 30 seconds with a well-asked question. Other times, it might require playing a video clip or telling a story or something like that. And you'll notice, if you pay attention, almost without exception, I do that when I preach. Almost without exception. Unless the text is so compelling, the, the story or the episode that it actually serves to arrest people's attention by itself. But you got to get, you you sort of want to start out, make this really canned, and over time it becomes more natural. Find an illustration online, find a story, find a quote. Get an activity ready. And do that with your students. And as you get more and more used to it, you will just know when you have your students' attention. And you may be able to shorten your introduction. So the second thing then is, which shouldn't exceed about 5%, in fact, it may only be a couple percentage points, is the bridge. Yeah, Dave? Um, do you have a suggestion of showing them what they need to do on a daily basis? Do you have a couple of sermons where mm-hmm. um, in a series that instead of having a story, you Although, it would be very rare that I would just walk up and say, okay, so last week, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will do that if I'm the guy that's already given the announcements or I've already said something to the church because sometimes, and preaching is a little different than teaching in that respect, sometimes just the small talk, I know it has served to get people's attention. So then I can kind of get to the point of my lesson quicker But I'm not just going to walk up there, and I've seen preachers do this all the time. Okay, turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to begin reading with, we're going to begin reading, they always say it twice. We're going to begin reading with Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. Come on, right? It's so typical. Avoid cliche at all costs. And the best way to avoid cliche is to listen to cliche. You should be a little sarcastic and a little critical if you're going to be a good teacher and to hear it in other preachers and teachers and just just avoid it. Avoid the ah, 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 use of the voice, the up and we call it the preacher's whine. Just get rid of all that kind of thing. Obviously you your your intonation, your vocabulary changes a bit when you're doing public monologue as opposed to conversation with someone in the hallway. But uh, you got to get into a bit of a rhythm in order to survive, however long you're teaching or preaching. But I don't know. This, I just find there's something sickening to me personally about the predictability of the preacher's whine. And I think that can come through in, in teaching as well. Hello, students. How was your day? It's like, well, not all of them had a great day. So why are you pretending that it is or assuming that it is? Um, you know, be a creative teacher. Hey, you know what? Today sucks. And let me tell you why. Huh? My teacher used that word? Yeah. Well, you're going to have their attention, right? So mix it up. Try something a little different. And again, whatever you do, know why you're doing it. You're trying to orient them to the biblical world, and you're trying to arrest their attention. So the next thing we have is the bridge. So this stage functions to bridge from the introduction into lesson development, which is the third section. So the goal is to offer a bridge from the current world into the biblical text. I would suggest this shouldn't be more than maybe a sentence to a paragraph of verbal talk. And a helpful way to uh, 
think about this as you put it together in your own words, is to ask yourself, how does the biblical world, and I'm just throwing out some different suggestions, help or inform or solve or address the matter raised in the introduction? So there once was a kid who yada, 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 and this happened to him, and that happened to him, and can you believe this, and you can believe that. Now, I wonder what God thinks about that. That's your bridge right there. I wonder what God thinks about that. Or did you know that there's actually a story in the Bible that is almost exactly like that? That's your bridge. Or let's think about why this is important for us to avoid that kind of action. Or as we've listened to the lyrics of this song, one of the things that kind of caught my attention was this particular line. Now, I, I want to take some time and sort of go through some passages of the Bible with you today to see what God thinks about uh, that line. So one of the, the, the key things in your bridging statement is you should use some language that appeals to the Bible or God or Christ or use some sort of language like that that basically tips your students off that you're going to take them to an authority source. So you're going to take them to the Bible. But you can just say God or Christ or the Holy Spirit or Paul the Apostle or David or the Bible or the Old Testament or the book of John. Whatever you say, appeal to a source of authority in your bridging statement. The, the bridge should be, form, should be able, and this is uh, from the perspective of the teacher, should be formulated as a question even if it isn't asked as such. So you don't necessarily need to say, I wonder what the Bible says about this kid's problem, based on, let's just assume you told a story about some kid with a problem. You could just say, the Bible has something to say about this kid's problem. But you, as a teacher, should be able to formulate, in, formula, uh, formulate it into a question so you know what your purpose is. Because you have the, the problem in the world, you then ask a question, what's the solution? You're now taking people into the biblical text. So now the fun begins. And this is where you're going to spend the bulk of your time. But don't just spend all your time here. Make sure you do the steps before and the steps after well. Here's what I recommend. You write your lesson first. So this third section is actually written first. Then you go back up and you build the other components. But you don't write it without any thought at all to what the first two and the last two stages might be. You're sort of thinking about them. Um, you know, there's an old proverb, I guess you might call it, proverbial, it's not necessarily a proverb, but it's a, a proverbial thought that is often taught in preachers' courses and that is don't go looking for a great illustration and then try to find a sermon to fit it. And you sort of wonder at times if preachers might be doing that. They found like this great story. I just got to tell it. I don't care if it fits or not. But I'm going to tell this great story or I'm going to unpack it this way and then try to like manipulate or find a text that fits it. And there can be a temptation to do that. But don't, don't be that kind of teacher who just has a, a bag full of tricks in your head and you're just trying to find some passage to apply them to. Make the, crea the creative introduction stuff flow out of you after you know where you want to go with the biblical text. So here's how you're going to handle the biblical text. And this is going to be somewhere between 65 and 80% of your lesson time. This stage is going to include examination of the biblical text or texts. So that would assume you're going to read them and then you're going to explain them or engage as a teacher with your students in some way so the explanation will come. So, Richard, um, we just read this passage. I'd like you to tell me what word is repeated here over and over again. Or, um, Peter, notice we just read this proverb. What's your understanding of proverbs? Like, How do they function as compared to um, maybe uh, an epistle? So you start to ask questions. But you as a teacher are not coming in, and I'll say this again in a moment, you're not coming into the lesson unprepared and relying upon your students to present you with the content. I can't, this drives me insane when people, and it's so tempting when people are using curriculum. The, 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 you know, if a teacher comes and they, they get together and he or she wants to be like a facilitator 
Okay, that's an overused word. You're a teacher. Uh, but they want to be a facilitator. They want to sort of, you know, be very democratic and bring people in, and they don't want to project themselves as an authority, and they spend far too much time talking about their own hang-ups, and they read the text, and then they'll say, uh, Heather, what do you think this text means? Hmm, thank you, Heather. Hmm. Dave, what do you think this text means? Hmm, yeah. Uh, Michelle, what do you think this text means? Hmm, great, okay, well, let's move on. Well, everything they said might have been heresy or useless or contradictory. One person might have got it right, the other didn't, and you just kind of let, okay, we call this a pooling of ignorance. So when you are going to preach or teach a text, you should know what the text says. And then even if you're going to ask questions, what do you think? Oh, that, that's interesting. Well, let's keep, even if you totally disagree, you know, oh, you're wrong, get out of here, you know? <laughs> There's methods you can use as a preacher to sort of, or teacher to sort of uh, affirm that person. Okay, that's, I, th- I think you're, you're taking us in a direction that's worthy of our consideration. Um, let's just kind of go back to that in a moment. Okay, or you said something that's interesting. Let's, let's assume it's true for the moment, and then we're going to sort of look at some other scriptures, and then we're going to come back and I'll see if your, your mind has stayed or changed. So you can kind of be gracious to your students who may have uh, you know, answered a question in, inappropriately, but that's part of a learning process. And you just kind of got to be Johnny on the spot. You need to see the truth when it's stated, see the error when it's stated, and be able to offer direction and guidance to your, to your student when they may have said something that's, that's wrong. So uh, observations of the text, this is important. It's the whole idea of, so what do you see? What did you notice? What were some repeated words? This is the whole like inductive Bible study thing. Um, what were the changes of thought? Who were the characters? What's the background? What's the geography? What's the history? Any questions that are relevant? Asking questions of the text. Uh, offering illustrations, suggested applications. All this is in your lesson development. Now, I think, and again, this is just my opinion. You don't have to stick with this. But I think... Um, a lesson probably is going to have at least two sub-points to your main say-it-in-a-sentence purpose. If it doesn't have at least two, then there's not really much of an outline. You're just saying, saying it in a sentence with a whole lot more sentences than that. So you want to probably have two to five main lesson points. Or I've also thrown in the word sequences because I don't want us to always think of teaching as just making points. Here's a point. Here's point one. Here's point two. Here's point three. And I've just used maybe a vaguer word, sequences, because it might be five notions or five ideas or two points and, uh, you know, a a bad example that you want to communicate from the biblical text. So roughly two to five main pieces of information that are going to support and hang off of and buttress your say-it-in-a-sentence statement. And then under each of those, you're going to include some sort of an examination of the text, a guided explanation of it, which goes back to my previous point. It's okay for students to offer explanation, but you're going to guide them. Observations of the text, illustrations or exercises that bring it to bear on life. Um, Questions and application ideas. These don't have to be in this particular order. You could start with an illustration, then move to a question, then move to an explanation. You could start, read the text, explain the text, illustrate the text, apply the text, and then do it with your second point, and then your third point. Or you may mix it up. You may ask a question then offer an illustration, then offer an explanation, and then show the people that that actually comes from the biblical text. So you can kind of mix it up a little bit. But what I what I really want to drive home is that you're going to have an overarching purpose that you want to meet. Okay, And this, whether you say it or not, is your say it, in a sentence statement that you've written down. So even if your students leave and they don't know what that say it in a sentence statement is word for word on your worksheet, if I say, hey, what did your teacher speak about today? They should be able to more or less say it in a sentence and it should reflect more or less what you taught them. So under this, 
you're going to have one, two, and maybe downwards of or upwards of five headings or points or sequences or thoughts that somehow all go back, they all go back to supporting this overarching purpose or thesis or proposition or notion you want to present. So under each of these then, so these are, let's say you're, we'll just use the three. You can set this up differently, but roughly speaking, you're going to have some sort of dialogue about the Bible. So some sort of explanation, questioning, observations of the text, delving into the text, trying to pull it apart, understand it, unpack it, cross-reference it, that kind of thing. Then you're going to somehow move to, in all likelihood, some sort of an illustration of the point or notion or thing you're trying to make, unless the text is a narrative and it's illustrating it because it's a story. In other words, it's more important to have illustrations when you're teaching epistle than it is when you're teaching Genesis, because Genesis is narrative. It's a story, right? It serves as an illustration. The illustrations can be good ones or bad ones. And then you're going to have some sort of application under point one. Then kind of the same thing under point two, then point three, then point four, then point five, or however many points you have. So every time you unpack a biblical idea, you want to explain it, illustrate it from life, and then apply it. When I mean apply it, it's not you applying it. It's suggesting or pointing people to application. We'll get back to that more in a moment. And again, you can mix these up. You can start with the application, then illustrate it, and then explain what you mean by it. And then if people are like, well, how do I know that's true? Let's go to the text. And we'll show that everything we've talked about, illustrated and applied, is actually a biblical idea. Surprise, surprise. And that's the eureka moment. The key is... Help the student understand scripture, help them to wrestle with it, question it, and then ultimately surrender to it. That's what your goal is. So it's okay to provoke. We've got to wrestle with this. You don't need to spill the beans right away. So if you're teaching and you're like, you know, I, I think, I don't, I'm not sure the students are really understanding the text, that's okay. Let them not understand it for a while. Make them like wrestle with it and pull it apart. In, in good teaching, sometimes it's a good idea, it's, it's a good indication that you're a good teacher if your students are confused for a period of time. Now, they shouldn't be confused when they leave. But if there's confusion in the process, that's part of learning. It's part of learning to drive. I don't know what to do. Uh, how, how do uh, this is all confusing. This is overwhelming. Okay, well, let me explain. You do this, then you do that. Okay, then you get practice. Okay, this is becoming easier. So you don't have to you know, be really, really nice to your students all the time. Uh, in the sense that you know you don't want to ever ever you don't have to ever be confused or thrown off or overwhelmed or oh, I don't know what to do with it. That's okay. That's part of a learning process, and it's also part of as we talked about last week, putting the cookies a couple shelves higher than maybe they think they can reach for. So don't dumb down your students. Don't underteach them. Okay, this is continuing. Uh, what happened here? Oh, okay. We skipped that. So this is the second slide of that middle section lesson development. I had to break it up. Here's some helpful tips. Mix in leading questions rather than yes-no questions only. Yes-no questions may be more suitable for uh, younger students, but I think you can ask leading questions as well. So what would be an example? Let's say we're talking about um, the holiness of God. That's your your theme. How just what would be an example of a yes/no question pertaining to that truth, and a, more of a leading question that generates discussion? Yeah, is God holy? Yes. Okay. Good. Let's move on. How holy is He? Or have you ever thought about what the holiness of God is? How would you describe holiness? You force the student. To not get away with yes, no, yes, no. And this is especially good, 
And if you're a teacher and you know your class, and you don't always know your class because you may just be a guest teacher, but if you know your class and you have the opportunity to ask questions, I'm going to look around and I'm going to say, okay, which one of you tends to like to get away with yes, no questions? And let's just say it was Dave. Let's say Dave is like really quiet. He doesn't like to be centered out. He always sits in the back. He's, you know, he's got his hat pulled down. Hey, Dave, what's your understanding of the holiness of God? Whereas let's say Adriana is in the front and every time I ask a question, I kind of want to like tone her down. Adriana, is God holy? Yes, okay, you, asked, you answered a question. Moving back to Dave, right? So you can kind of control the classroom a little bit by asking students a question in lieu of their personality. If, you, you know, if, if there's a student that's answered 50 questions already, but they want to answer another one, just give them a yes, no to get it over with. But the student that is sort of dawdling and not participating, make them think about it. Now, don't, don't embarrass them. Sometimes you ask a question, students, okay, well, I'll come back to you. Let's think about it. And you can kind of tell if a student's like overwhelmed, feels centered. So just don't stare at them like, I want the answer. <laughs> or simplify the question. Uh, make it less complex. And then move on. Something like that. Okay, be provocative, challenge responses, and reword responses. So this means it's not always the, the smiley, uh, you know, nice teacher that is the best teacher. Thank you for your answer, Tommy. That was really well put. Now, let's move on. Um, you don't always have to be that kind of person. You, you can sort of provoke. Okay, well, I, I'm not sure that there's... I, I, I would be suspicious that there's some other people in this classroom that would disagree with that. I'm not going to tell you what I think yet. But Tommy, I think there's some other people that may disagree with that. I want to hear, is anyone who disagrees with Tommy, and I want you to tell me why, because Tommy may disagree with you too. Provoke, challenge. Again, you've got to be age appropriate. You've got to think about kid with low self-esteem as opposed to the kid with a big ego. You've got to think about whether they're your peers or people that are younger or older. Like, you know, common sense. But these are the kinds of things you can bring in. Also... If a student has, you, you, you suspect, given an answer that's over the heads of the other students, the, the, the browner, or is sort of maybe spoke re really low, you couldn't really hear what they had to say, or just for the purpose of reinforcing it, you can reword. Okay, so what they're saying is, and you reword it, and then it kind of drives the point home. Now, in a room... Um, there are people that love history. There's the grammarians, the artists, the intellectuals, etc. So I would suggest you vary your mode to maximize student appeal. So even when I uh, uh, preach in particular, I'll sometimes think, you know what, it's been a while since I've thrown in a historical anecdote, and Glenn's sitting there, so I've got to get one in here for Glenn, right? So I'll throw that in. Or, um, you know, maybe... Maybe not everybody cares about the nuance of a Greek verb, but there's some people that you know love grammar, and so uh, I'm going to sort of unpack uh, the nuance of a, a word for them. Or um, you know somebody's an, an athlete, so let's pull the athletic illustration. Or they're an artist, so let's kind of play with some flowery language here a little bit. And it's it's not that I can see everybody everybody's responses, but there are times when this happens, so the person's sitting there and you're, you're telling, let's say, uh, you're, you're speaking to something grammatical, and a certain group of people are like, and then you tell a historical anecdote. A certain set of people like lean into it, right? And then you tell a joke, and there's always a certain set of... I, I, I actually find it funny just to do this, just to watch responses, but there's people... There's a, like they will not laugh at anything and I find that funny so it just motivates me to do it more especially if I suspect that it's irritating them then I really want to do it more so vary the mode because you're going to have various personalities in the mix now you're also going to want to give allow students to give input make adjustments so sometimes a student will say you know, I never thought about that, that's good you make adjustments, you challenge content, but it's not their job to create it. So again, don't pool ignorance. It's your job to know what you're supposed to say or what you want to teach. 
use but don't overuse activity-based learning processes. There's a lot of um, there's been a lot of work done in pedagogy in our generation and probably just the previous generation on activity-based learning. Frankly, I'm a little concerned about that. I think in some ways it's, it's symptomatic of our postmodern culture which downplays or denies the validity or necessity of truth and knowledge. And it's just all about participation. And there's even preaching theories like round table preaching philosophies where the, t the Bible no longer provides you with a source of your information, but the preacher has like midweek round tables and they invite in various people from the church and those people create the content of the message. I'm not, I'm not talking about they explore the Bible together. They create the truth. There's books written on this. Um, when I was studying at Waterloo Lutheran, I was forced to read one. And um, it's just like a, a, the, the, the community determines what's right or wrong. Um, and I, I just see, uh, we all want students to participate. We want them to engage. But maybe I'm old school. The teacher should be more knowledgeable by far than the average student should have information and content that they can present to their students that is meaningful and helpful. They should be somewhat of an expert in their area of teaching. And they should be able to impart good, solid information in a winsome and useful way. And not just sit around doing story circles all the time or drawing things. So activities is okay, but... Uh, I'll, I'll speak to those of you that teach children. If what you're doing is no different than what they're doing at ABC Daycare, there's a problem. I remember years ago when we were getting the church started, we were struggling with you know, finding good curriculum for the teachers. And I remember my wife was either teaching in the kids' ministry or heading it up at the time. And you know, she's like, oh, Aaron, today's lesson was on water. Huh? What do you mean, like, what? like a Noah's flood? No, no, it was just it was on water. It was like a Christian curriculum teaching kids about water. Uh, okay, well, there's probably some reference, some verse with the word water in it. But it's, you're not teaching people the Bible, you're just teaching them about water. Like, go to the day school for that. You know, Christian teaching should be somewhat distinct. And then we have the um, suggest application that affects head, sorry, that's a typo, that should be head, heart, or hands. So sort of the mental, emotional, uh, attitudinal, or kinesthetic. And another way of thinking of your, this part of your lesson is um, just using the four words, examine it, explain it, illustrate it, apply it. Think about this. What trouble does the current world have that can be addressed by the grace of the biblical world? That's one angle. Another angle is, what trouble or grace does the biblical world raise that should bring trouble or grace into the current world? So I am just, just want to suggest that sometimes we know there's a problem, and so we go to the Bible to find a solution. Other times we don't know there's a problem, and the Bible has to tell us there's a problem. And then it provides us with the, the solution. So you can use your teaching both ways, and just... Uh, create your lesson content accordingly. Now, the next stage, the, the fourth of five stages, is what I'm calling practice and impartation. I thought about like application. Uh, um, I thought about usefulness. Um, typed some words and deleted them. Typed them in, deleted them. And these two words that I, I thought maybe best capture what I want to communicate. It's not just about applying it. You want them to maybe even have an opportunity to practice it, whatever it is that the it is. But then if it's like a wisdom-based or a knowledge-based stuff, it's not really application as much as you want to impart it to them, like a gift. So this stage offers directed practice or enforcement or application of the previous section. So chances are in the previous section, you've already got into some applicational points or practical points, or you've appealed to the mind, the heart, the hands. But now you're sort of like taking this section out. Maybe you've 
alluded to it or you weren't crystal clear on it. Now you're like, okay, let's just cut to the chase, students. This is what I want from you. This is what God wants from you. This is what the Bible wants from you. This is what your parents want from you, whatever. So the teacher then uh, wants to put a frame around any suggested application. So frame it in. Put neon lights around it. Dress it up that arose in the previous stage or suggest additional ones. The goal here is to reinforce the applicability of the biblical text. If the biblical text doesn't apply, it's not the biblical text's fault. It's yours. And you know what the greatest sin is? It's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's making the Bible boring. Okay, that's a little joke, of course. But um, it is making the Bible boring because the Bible is not. So what are you focusing on? Here you could be focusing on, and again, we could add to this list, changed personal behavior or changed relational behavior. So maybe my, maybe my behavior toward myself is wrong. Maybe my behavior towards my brother Dave is wrong, and that needs to change. Or maybe my, my priorities are messed up, like I just spend too much time entertaining myself to death and I need to get over that, put the video game down or whatever it might be. Kind of go and do likewise challenges. So if you're looking at someone in the text who's a good role model, hey, go and do likewise. Uh, changed money or possessions behavior, so the whole materialism thing. Changes of thinking about God, self, others. And then it can, it's not always just, okay, here's what your problem is. We also need to point to, like, uh, here's some encouragement for you. Here's some promises for you. Here's what Christ has done for you. It's more of just a building up. Conversion. There may be unbelievers in the mix. Recommitment to God, service, etc. So at the end of the day, this will come really easy to you if you have already asked, how, how has it or how should it change me? And you'll have your answer. If, if you live in your student's world, you understand your students, and you're like, okay, this is how this needs to change me, or this is how it already has changed me, then this stuff's going to just flow. So isn't that the same as goals? Yeah, this is like where, where your, your goals are coming to like razor focus, like the sharp edge of the wedge. Now you're like very, very uh, uh, succinctly saying, okay, this is what you need to do, or this is how you need to think, or this is how you need to feel. Well, your goal is, let's say, I want to teach my students about the holiness of God. Uh, that might be a doctrinal goal. But this is where, okay, I want you to read your Bible every single day for 15 minutes. And then I want you to pray about how uh, God wants to make you holy through this particular text we've been looking at today. So it's, it's, it's much more specific. A goal is kind of, kind of like what I want to accomplish, but this is where I'm actually being so bold as to suggest this is how it needs to be lived out. And you can do it uh, through questions. So you don't necessarily need to say, let's say you've taught on marriage. You don't necessarily need to say, okay, all of you guys, I want you to buy your wife some roses this week and be nice to her. I mean, you can do that. But you can be less finger-wagger, less of a finger-wagger by saying, when was the last time that you, and I want you guys to think about this. Don't look across the room. I don't want you to be looking down at your cell phones right now. I don't want you to be looking up at the ceiling. I want you to listen to this question, and I want you to think about this question. And wives, I don't want you to pester your husbands about this question after I ask it. This is for them. You can plug your ears right now. But guys, I have a question for you. When was the last time you tangibly expressed your affection to your wife? The pause, the awkward pause, right? That's application, but you didn't say it, you asked it. But it's, it serves the same purpose. Uh, in my preaching, even if you listen carefully, I probably ask five questions for every time I make a direct appeal to you to change behavior. Okay. The appeal is like your wrap-up. So this should not exceed 2 to 
So this stage offers a direct appeal to put the lesson to practice. Now, um, here you're not coming up with something new. You're just summarizing and crystallizing what you've already done. So some lessons require follow-up, later review, accountability, and offer of assurance. In this concluding stage, the teacher takes just a few sentences to restate their say-it-in-a-sentence lesson summary. And generally, the way you would do this is you'd offer one well-worded, terse, meaning like unambiguous, direct challenge or encouragement to the student before ending the lesson. So just to kind of give you some visuals here, end with the crack of a whip or the motivation of a coach rather than like the fizzling out of a fire. You know, if you go to a campfire, it's just go out. kind of fizzles out over time, maybe hours, sort of smokes and hisses and sputters a bit, and eventually there's nothing left. That's like a kind of a bad way to end a lesson. But kind of end it with a, you know, here's the point. If you didn't pay attention to anything else, get this. Or let me just encourage you with, or you guys can do it. Kind of wrap it all up. A sentence, a paragraph, something short, something sweet, and you're done. Any questions about these stages we've looked at? Then I must have done a good job. But I'm going to find out because we're now going to put this into practice. So let's take our break and... We will break from the teaching, spend a little bit of time in prayer. Then we will eat, drink, and be merry. Then we're going to come back. I want you to immediately come back into your groups when the lights start flashing. So come back into your groups. You might have to rearrange a few people, or you can just kind of rearrange yourselves. And uh, I want you to um, take the material that you looked at last week, using the worksheet, and try to put together a lesson plan. Don't, obviously you can't cross every T and dot every I. You're going to have about half an hour at the most to do it. So start with the, the, uh, the third stage and then go back and build the others. Um, if you have a larger group, you can sort of divvy things up. So these few are going to tackle this, these few are going to get working on this, and then we'll have a little bit of time for sharing and analysis. Okay. So obviously you're not finished, you don't have something that's actually teachable, but the purpose of this exercise is at least to give you, to orient you to how it might happen. And I would suggest that if you were to say, Aaron, you know, how much time do you think I should be spending on a lesson? I would think probably um, three hours minimum for, for uh, people that maybe don't teach every day. And I would say anywhere between three and six hours is probably reasonable. If you're putting like 12 hours into a 45-minute lesson, you're probably over-preparing a little bit. But now that you have a structure in your head, which is gonna, it's half the battle, right? You know where you want to go. You're, it's more or less like a plug-and-play kind of an experience. If you outline stuff, it's just so much simpler. This is why when I've... Uh, when I was learning to preach, whenever I've taught other guys to preach, I would say, look, the most important thing in the process of writing the sermon, okay, so you've studied the text, the process of writing the sermon is getting a good flow or outline put together. And after that, literally, it's like you're, you're filling in the blanks. You're, you're, you're filling in the blanks of, this, of the, the paragraphs and the illustrations and stuff, but you, you have the essence of what you need to say down. And the great thing about teaching, unlike preaching, is it's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. It's back and forth. So you just have to have points. You don't, have, you don't write out complete paragraphs. You just have to have points and a general flow, and then you just learn the, the art and the science of asking good questions and, and dialoguing with students and reading their responses and creating activities and lessons and all that kind of thing. So um, hopefully that's an encouragement to you. So because we don't have time to hear one group like present the whole thing, Let's just open it up. Any questions or comments? We have about six or seven minutes. Questions or comments that arose in your group about your lesson plan? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. 
honing in on um, yes. scoring in like, like one two three points, one two yeah. three, and without trying to be like, oh, I need to talk about this. No, I need to talk about this. Yeah, that's, that is the most difficult part of it, of it all. Condensing down into like well-worded statements, the basic structural outline of your, your lesson plan itself. Same with a sermon. Getting those two or three main thoughts fleshed out that all tie into the overarching idea or theme. You're working it. You're reworking it. You're switching out words. Sometimes you'll write a whole bunch. Oh, i got to go back. The, the word just doesn't work. The idea doesn't capture the imagination. Or maybe it's not true to the text. And uh, just working that and working that and working that so that it's crystal clear in your mind where you're going with it. Absolutely, Richard. I mean, you guys did it in a condensed period of time. If you're spending three to six hours putting together a lesson, I'm, I'm thinking probably two to three of it is just the bare bones outline. And then after that, you're just quickly jumping online, finding illustrations or activities or downloading a video clip or jotting down you're going to write tell this particular story. That's, but the hard part is those two to three points in the lesson development that's where the real work comes in, to make them succinct, clear, flow, meaningful. So you guys are dealing with walking in the spirit, right? Well, right there you have like a, a massive hurdle in what we call clearing the metaphor. It's a metaphorical expression, and it's kind of, especially for those of you teaching elementary and secondary, it's like pie-in-the-sky stuff. So how do, you, how do you even take that language and work with it? Um, so one of the one of the jobs of the teacher is to wrestle through that language and not just assume that your students know what that means. I am never concerned about, well, I should say, to be quite honest, very rarely concerned about people agreeing with me or disagreeing with me in a sermon or a lesson. I am very, very concerned about being clear. And... I can tell you this, I don't have any anxiety about being clear if I'm clear on it. But if when I'm walking, I'm still not real clear on this, then I start getting a little nervous. If I'm not clear, they're not going to be clear. So clarity, clarity, clarity is so, so important. And clarity is just reflected in your structure. At the end of the day, we're all more concerned about clarity than we are in structure. But the structure is just a mechanism that forces us to move closer and closer to clarity. could, yeah. yeah. Then, or you could do multiple choice. Yeah, or for younger people, you could do multiple choice. Okay, walking in the spirit means A, B, C, D. And you have like maybe one that's somewhat reasonable, one that's ludicrous, one that maybe uh, is de denominationally specific, and one that's biblical. And just kind of make them think through that. Or you could, depending on the group and the, the level of learning, you could talk about what is a metaphor. Use different examples of metaphors. Okay, so this is a metaphor. Walking, okay, well, that that's a little easier because it's like following somebody. So if you're walking, say, hey, walk with me to McDonald's. You're following me. Now, a spirit, that's a little harder because how do you walk after someone you can't see? So there, we got the followership down. Let's talk about the spirit. You need to explain who the spirit is. And the fact that we don't perceive all that is real, not all that is real is tasteable, touchable, smellable, feelable, touchable. Um, or maybe I missed one, hearable. And work more with their understanding of the spirit and then bring them together. Okay, so you could do that, yeah. I think a great way to, just as we were going around talking, a great way to, to, to teach the um, this text is the pluses and the minuses approach. So this is kind of like how to do, how to walk in the spirit, what it looks like, and this is how to be stupid. So the two S words, you can follow the spirit or you can be stupid. And just sort of like break those down. You can follow God, you can follow the flesh. And then you, so how do you illustrate, or sorry, how do you apply a negative? 
Because you don't want to say, well, now go and be stupid. So how do you apply a negative? So, okay, so you, you talk about consequence. I mean, don't do it, yeah. I mean, you say don't do it, but how do you... Usually when we think about application, we reduce it down to go do this. Well, how do you go do this when the thing is a negative? So you talk about consequences. Mm -hmm. Now, I think when we teach and preach this stuff, and uh, there's a certain sense in which we keep it lofty, you know, walking the Spirit, this is a lofty idea. But then, um, almost at the point when the student thinks, this is so lofty it's not applicable, then we bring it home really fast. Okay, this is what this means. Okay, all of you do this, I know you do. And that's what this means. Oh, okay, then it's, wow. So when you can take something that's lofty, and instead of really slowly trying to like convince them that they actually are that, you bring it down really quick. That's when it grabs them. And what that also serves to do on a psychological level, I think, is it creates in the student a desire to learn the lofty because the lofty and the practical are not miles apart anymore. They're actually very close. Like very, very close. So if there's one thing, if I hear feedback from sermons, probably the most common form of feedback would be um, to the effect of, did you go through my garbage? Did someone tell you about me? Either jokingly or seriously. Some, I, sometimes people are serious. Like, did, you, did someone talk? No. Um, other times, like, ah, oh, ha, ha, did my wife talk to you? Okay, well, that should happen all the time for all of us as communicators. And how does that happen? Basic assumption, I am far more like you than I am different than you. Far, far more alike. And so I just think about myself. And then I think about all the people I've spoken to in my life, formally and informally in counseling sessions and dialogues, the one I'm married to, the, the ones that are my children, the ones that help me pass to the church, and on and on and on. And I just intuitively think about like, what are the common threads? Strip away the gender, the, the, the ethnicity, the skin color, the age. What are the common threads? And it's like, ah, eureka, 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 eureka. This is where you need to go for. Uh, you don't need to make it like super specific, but you can ask questions like, have any of you ever been afraid? I'm not talking about afraid of a lion eating you at the park. I'm talking about like this sense of like I'm vulnerable, I'm weak, and... Uh, uh, you know, you just sort of work with that concept, explain it, and, and, and well, we're all like that. And you may put on the tough guy persona or whatever it might be to try to hide it, but we all have fears, and we don't think about them all the time, of course. Sometimes they float through our heads and they're gone. Other times we meditate upon them and mull them over, but we all have fears. So how do we then overcome that? What's the root of fear? Maybe we might talk about anxiety. What's the root of anxiety? Um... Maybe the root of anxiety is control. What's the root of control? Maybe it's ego. What's the root of ego? Pride. You know, and you trail it back with them. And then you take them to the text and talk about the poison of pride and how when we deal with that, so many other things take care of itself, including fear. You know, just, just like intuitively walk through people's mental processes. And... and you will help them to arrive at conclusions without necessarily saying, hey, I want to tell you something I know you've never heard of. You're afraid. We all have fear. That's point number one. Point number two is we're all prideful. Point number three is God says stop being prideful. Okay, let's move on. Everything you've said is true, but it doesn't accomplish anything. But if you can mentally walk through people's trains of thought by thinking about your own trains of thought, then you help to lead them to uncovering their own ugliness and uncovering hope. And that's what will make you an effective communicator. And then all, all you're doing from there on in is you're playing with words and methods and tones of voice and on and on and on to just try to make it sound clearer and clearer and clearer.
Okay? So, I believe that all of you are capable of teaching a good lesson because you have a Bible at your hands, you have an indwelling Holy Spirit, and if you listen to him, he'll never do you wrong. You have an incredible resource in a church of hundreds of people, many of whom are gifted teachers you can learn from. And we have lots and lots of people that need to be taught of all ages and all stripes, including all of us. So I'm just going to encourage you to go teach. But before you get to teach, you have to do the hard work of preparing the lesson. And preparing the lesson is viewed strictly as an academic exercise, really boring. But if you view it as an opportunity for personal life change, then even in the lesson planning, there's a redemptive element, a benefit to you. And then when you come out of the gates and you're teaching, you just spill over and brim over with the benefit that you've experienced from it into the lives of your students. And you bathe that in prayer and let God do what only God can do, which you and I are incapable of doing, which is like creating the spark. And you have that ignition, and then you have transformed lives. So be a diligent thinker, um, student of the word. Be clear. If you're not clear on something, think it over until you are clear. And then just follow this process. And when you've done it about 300 times, then you can create your own. Okay? But follow this process. And it will help to clarify your thinking and make you a good teacher. So go teach.